And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge, and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. Today we're talking to George Haz, a founding teacher of the Meta Group, an organization based in Los Angeles. George has a varied and rich background in Buddhism, originally starting in 1992 with Vipassana and becoming a student of Shinzen Young, and he's a facilitator and teacher within Shinzen's world. He's been teaching since 2000 and founded the Meta Group in 2003. He's also taught for Against the Stream and currently works a great deal on addiction and attachment. George is an artist and photographer. The Meta Group is setting up a project in Los Angeles, supported by the musician Sia. And we talk about this quite a bit in our conversation today, although most of it is really, again, getting personal within this practice series. And George is candid in sharing his experiences of both the ups and downs of the practicing life. As a man who has dealt with his own addiction and challenges and a difficult childhood, some of this material, I think, is pretty profound. But we also have a laugh, too. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation on The Practicing Life Today. Yeah, it's been a very odd year. I was thinking a, a few months back about this, um, you know, this Tibetan thing, this Tibetan practice of, of seeing everything like a dream. And I thought, well, right. we're kind of living in that because we live in such surreal times. It's difficult <laughs> not to see it as being some kind of non-reality. It's, it's, uh, it's odd. My teacher, Dan, is a, is a Tibetan teacher, but he says in this new book I'm working on, there's an essay about this. In the West, of course, Plato um, is the person who did the original evaluation of how we experience things. And so his version was that we take in what's outside and then we create a working model in, in our interior and that, that it's an accurate working model. Uh, and that all of the things that we consider in Buddhism, like mind states and, and perception and, and data, the database of conditioning don't really apply. There was some adjustment to that uh, with Aristotle later. But really, in the West, we're taught as people that we see the outside world accurately. And that's completely not the case in Buddhism, where we we take in the data from the sensing and we process it uh, through perception and then we project it back out. So actually, we're all wandering around in our own simulations. <laughs> that might be a way to put it. It might be. Yeah, it might be. Although, of course, that question um, hasn't gone away, though, has it? I mean, we, we've still got cognitive scientists. We've still got philosophers. We do. Uh, we, we've even got linguists, you know, just diving in on the whole thing. And they're all... They're all kind of, you know, still there. Uh, what's that phrase? Something about all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Um, I don't know about that. 
<laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't speak to that. But I, I think it's interesting that we haven't made our minds up yet as a species right. about to what degree that's true and you know what we do with the consequences of it of, co- of course buddhism or buddhisms have something to say about that right. but um you know there's this concept that um i've been talking about on and off for the last couple of years with uh glenn wallace who was a, a guest ah, of ours yes. and um there's this concept that that we both like it's called the great feast of knowledge and it's kind of an attempt to address some of the insular nature of, of the knowledge fields, whether it be Buddhism or philosophy or Western science or whatever it is, right. um, to try and find a way to kind of address that at least as a practice, right? And the practice is that you you don't settle for one interpretation of, of any complex phenomenon, but you say, well, you know, there are these relationships or these dialogues still going on. And what's interesting is actually to engage with those dialogues. Right. Um, and I guess I find that interesting as a kind of antidote to, well, to, to what I would tend to term, although I don't know if you like this kind of language, sort of uh, uh, identification with a, with a given ideology. Right. I love Buddhism, but I'm also, I've been involved with it long enough to say, well, <laughs> weird things happen if you take Buddhism a little too seriously, you know? <laughs> so it's best to... Best to look from a few other perspectives at it too, and you know, right. maybe, maybe that's the life of the podcast. But anyway, let's have a let's have a quick normal introduction. Okay, George, I don't know how to pronounce your surname, and I hate to get people's names wrong. Hass. Hass. Yes. Mm. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. I've actually put together a few things I want to talk to you about, okay. and we'll see how much we get done. But. This is, of course, part of our series looking more at personal practice uh-huh. and, you know, just seeing what people have to say about that using a set of standard questions, uh, some of which I'm going to throw at you and you can do with them what you will. Okay. I also want to talk a little bit about addiction and attachment, considering that's so central to the, the work you do. Uh-huh. And, and I think they're fascinating topics, more broadly speaking. Um, and then I'd like to talk about your your book and your your upcoming project with Sia, just to to plug your work. Okay. Too. Thanks. Let's look at practice. So I don't know you so well, George. So I guess I'll start off with the the simplest question: uh, What is practice? Well, I'm a meditation teacher, so a lot of the practice that I do is involved in teaching. So I teach um, basically Theravada. Uh, Buddhism. Um, my main teacher in that was Shinzen Young, and so it's filtered through his sort of mashup. He really uh, calls himself a Vipassana or mindfulness teacher, but he, he's drawn from uh, Tibetan Zen and also Theravada practices, and he's secularized it, so it's a kind of um, American Buddhism, let's call it. So I use it as a way of um coming into understanding the nature of how the mind takes uh, ultimate reality and forms it into conceptual reality. So if you're not used to the B- Buddhist terms, is we have the six senses that take in data, and then we make the world out of it. Then we pr- project it outward, and we inhabit it. And then what is our relationship to the nature of the world that we create for ourselves through this process? So... Part of it is exploring the the sensing experiences um, and then watching the process of turning the sensing experiences into something, fixating them into something solid. And then in a 
since I'm not empowered to teach the stuff that Dan teaches me, my other teacher, I'm really working with the pith instructions for Dochen, which is a, a different kind of practice, which is mainly um, going into the vast expanse and and operating there in a boundless, um, boundaryless way. Um, as a practical description of that practice, it's simply uh, sitting and finding anything that's fix, fixated or solid and seeing if you can dissolve it and moving the identification with, uh, with the experience of self to, the, uh, to identification with the experience of awareness. Oh. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. I'd like to go back to the first person you mentioned, which was Shinzen. So these are two quite different approaches to right. the concept of practice. So I'll say two things here. What's your actual current practice, and to what degree have you made these two practice streams, let's call them that, that you've been speaking about, your own? I do them pretty much daily, um, and I I um, I do a, a morning meditation call. Uh, so the uh, Shinzen stuff, which has been filtered through my way of practicing, happens there. Mainly it's about uh, understanding mentalizing is the Western psychology term for it. And then um, exploring it, we use a, a series of techniques. I'm a metta vipassana teacher, and so I alternate between hard practices and insight practices, I call them. Uh, part of this is the understanding that uh, we have these two tracks in our experience. One is positive, let's uh, use that word, and one is negative, let's use that word. And so what we do is to reduce the suffering, of course, is to try to mitigate or eliminate the negative experiences. But at the same time, if you're not actively engaged in increasing the capacity for positive experiences, that uh, doesn't change much. And so it's this back and forth. Um, I'm very typical of my culture, this American culture that I'm in, uh, had a very harsh and critical voice uh, in relationship to myself. And so the the heart practices have, have really been uh, fundamental in changing that harsh relationship to myself to one of a real tender, kind, and loving uh, experience of myself. And then the insight practice is really um, seeing how I formulate this experience of self and how I'm defensive around it and how I interpret other people's relationships to it uh, and open that up into this sense of it's actually ephemeral and it arises based on conditions and it uh, it doesn't need to be defended because it's not actually solid <laughs> and subject to wax mm. and other indignities. <laughs> so, so, you know, we can talk about them just like that, but these are pretty radical ideas and pretty radical projects if somebody takes them seriously, right, and dedicates right. A, a significant chunk of their life to pursuing the possibilities that are on the other side of all this. Um, let's talk about gains and obstacles uh, for a moment. So, you know, if anybody takes this stuff seriously, obviously there are challenges involved and there are payoffs both in terms of, you know, sometimes what a teacher or a tradition might predict will happen, but also in, you know, on, on a very personal level, let's say. Um, and it's not always easy to see what those are going to be, of course. 
could you talk to some of the the personal gains that you've gained from committing to these practices? How is the qualitative experience of your life different? Well, I'm no longer crippled by anxiety and depression. That's one of the best things that happened. Mm. I'm able to tolerate intense emotional experiences so I can be in adult-like relationships with other people where where the um, uh, quality of emotional experience, both positive and negative, can be quite intense, and I don't need to withdraw from it in the way that I did earlier mm. before practice. Um, I've gotten really good at losing things. <laughs> so that I'm not completely derailed by the loss of things that I want or not getting them. or um, And uh, I think maybe um, I had a, you know, I like to say I had a crap childhood. And, uh, and, and uh, as a result of that uh, trauma um, was not particularly functional. And so I had a hard time paying the rent. I had a hard time keeping a job. I had a hard time keeping relationships. And so I have... A stable income. I have a stable place to live. I have stable relationships. Um, all of those things I would equate to the practice, uh, um, because the other uh, venues that were available to me at the time did not actually fix any of that. Even though I did spend a lot of time working at them, mm-hmm. so that would be, say, psychotherapy or some other interventions like that. Yeah. Yeah, and those are quite incredible outcomes for what is in many ways quite a humble practice. Hmm. Yeah, I say often to my students, so you're going to do this dopey little meditation and you're going to think this isn't going to do anything and then everything changes. It's quite quite amazing. Yeah, certainly. And what about obstacles? So we all meet them at some point. What have been a couple of the biggest obstacles you've had to confront and overcome during your practice life? I think at the beginning, the main difficulty was my inability to really um, maintain relationships very well. And so I would uh, try to embed myself into a meditative community or with a meditation teacher. And um, my ability to trust people was so minimal uh, that I would feel uh, betrayed and in danger and then withdraw from the community. So I I hopped from uh, community to community. Uh, and as a result of that, the teachings changed and the relationships changed. And I never was actually able to go very deep in any of the, uh, of the practices that I tried. And so uh, I never made much progress. Um, and uh, so um, I refer to that as my Dharma orphan period. And um, so hopping around from practice to practice and not really seeing much improvement was then creating a sense of discouragement that the practice actually doesn't work and it's not going to be helpful. Um, and that the the fundamental brokenness that I experienced in my early life was going to be unchangeable. So mm-hmm. that sense of disappointment mm-hmm. uh, is what it was mainly. So what about today? I would say it this way. I think there's a dearth sometimes in let's say, peer, peership. Um, obviously, in some traditions, there's still a tendency to provide um, support, right? Feedback, reflection, sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but many, many others, there's not. And I think a lot of long-term practitioners and even teachers often end up being in some kind of wilderness. <laughs> you know, it would be quite healthy for, for everybody to have a sort of wider community that goes beyond even just a given community. Right. 
one of the things that can happen is uh, practitioners can find themselves stuck without realizing it. And it's difficult to know quite what to do about that sometimes unless a person somehow is is given the opportunity to become aware of it. But slightly off topic, but it came to me now in listening to you. But the question I really want to ask is, what about limits today? Yeah, um, there are often things we don't talk about, especially if you're a teacher. You may have to present yourself in a certain way or or maintain a certain role. Um, and some teachers are quite reluctant to talk about this. But again, I think it's quite, it's quite good for the wider community if we do. What kind of limits do you come across in your current practice? And the two you described beforehand, if you'd, if you'd be willing to share that. Well, one of the things that happens, of course, is that you, um, in the West anyway, um, the, the, the uh, difficulty is finding a teacher that you can work with who will follow you um, so that you can have this um, coaching I, or mentoring is what I call it mm. along the way and that you can have it in reasonable intervals um, so that your practice advances. I think the main thing that happens is that we practice, um, but without sufficient guidance so that we don't really recognize where we are or what we need to do to move forward. Um, so um, Shinzen does not actually follow students in, in that traditional way, but Dan Brown does, and that's why I started working with him so that I can have a, a, an interview with him on a regular basis and that he's tracking it. The main difference between uh, most of the teachers in the West is you can reach out to them and have a conversation with them. But since they're not tracking you, they're basically one-off conversations where you're just talking about uh, the current uh, issue in, in your practice, which is not part of the overall picture of your practice. Whereas where a teacher is engaged with you and they follow you, then you can have that uh, very specific coaching or mentoring. The problem, of course, with that is um, I I'm one of the teachers that follows people, but I, I have a limit to the number of students that I can follow just in terms of time. Mm -hmm. And so it's a small number in comparison to the number of practitioners out there. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that probably is the thing for students for me as a teacher, I have uh, monthly calls with other teachers set up, and we, hmm. we're, we're all in different places, and we spend an hour or two once a month talking to each other about uh, what we're trying to develop and what we're offering and how students are responding to it. Uh, and so um, uh, currently I speak to four people in that way monthly. So once a week I'm talking to another teacher and uh, getting – that kind of support because it isn't appropriate for a teacher, I think, to rely on students for that kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I do personally is I have a life outside of meditation <laughs> <laughs> where uh, I've curated, especially for people who are not interested in meditation and don't really understand that I'm a meditation teacher or any of this kind of dialogue. We never have it. Mm -hmm. um, it's mainly in the art world, so I'm, I engage in the art world in a way that's different than just the meditation world. Well, that all sounds good, and it is good to hear that you have this uh, community of fellow teachers that you can, you know, bounce off ideas or struggles or whatever with. Good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, mm, here's a great question. <laughs> I can't believe I put <laughs> these together, to be honest. 
<laughs> but let's, uh, let's go for it. This is number eight. Where does meaning lie in your life at present? Ah, so this is one of the main topics I talk about because one of the mm. things that leads to despair in most people is that they don't pursue things that are meaningful. Yeah, right. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why people don't pursue things that are meaningful. And actually, the whole attachment work is, a, you know, there's these two main things. There's the attachment and the creation of the secure base. And then there's the expo- the exploration, the pursuit of things that are meaningful. And so it's quite different for each person based on their conditioning. And really, the main thing about finding meaning is to to uh, touch into that deep inner sense of yourself and what actually provides that sense of meaning and pursue it, even if it's not socially uh, considered um, uh, valuable. Uh, I always use meditation teaching as one of those examples. Uh, you know, uh, if you you can barely make a living. Most people can barely make a living as a meditation teacher. It's not highly rewarded. And particularly because of the concept of, uh, or the misconception of dana as a, as a practice, uh, and at least in, in America associating with or the United States, um, uh, uh, that, that, that means it's free. Uh, which means you don't have to uh, remunerate the teacher, which means they can't make a living. So you end up having a lot of part-time sort of hobbyist teachers rather than full-time teachers, which makes it harder to get the kind of instruction that you want past the beginning of practice. It's interesting. How do you see this dichotomy then between this sort of internal connection to something deeply personal meaning and the kind of social change we're going through right now where a lot of people believe that meaning is fundamentally found in our commitments to the world out there. Uh, good cause is justice and so forth. Well, I think that if you find personal meaning in that, personal satisfaction in that, then that, that is the way to go. Um, the... Uh, um, that movement from totally self-centered orientation to community orientation, I think is uh, the Buddhist term would be bodhicitta. Um, I don't concern myself too much about it in, in terms of practice or encouraging students, because if you practice deeply enough, that happens just by the nature of the practice itself, so that there doesn't have to be this, um, uh, this separate movement toward that. But the, the greater question then is, um, in our time, fundamentally between people who believe that society should be unequal and people who believe that society should be equal, uh, the uh, uh, economics of our Western world or the, that, that sort of global economy is really just coming out of um, slavery and it's not even that changed, which is that fundamental premise that it should be unequal and that some people should have vastly more than other people. And so the conservative movement um, uh, certainly here has been promoting that for 40 years and have uh, achieved just a phenomenal level of inequality. But what comes with that is this uh, oppression of, of people. And so, you know, we have mass incarceration here. We have uh, militarized police here because that's the only thing that can hold that uh, level of inequality from um, shredding the social fabric. 
And so uh, I think it's incumbent on uh, practitioners like myself to advocate for this sense of equality, for a distribution of resources uh, so that people have the opportunity to pursue meaning in a way that if you're not resourced, you can't do because you're, you're um, your time and energies are consumed by simply surviving in this, you know, sort of beastly system that we've put together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's another conversation right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Give me could, a soapbox. I'm willing to stand up. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's good to know. Well, we'll give it to you for a minute, then we'll push you off, George. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting one, you know, because these topics are so, are, are, are you know, there are many things, but they're very heated, but they're also right. very powerful, and they're very necessary, and and in many ways they're just the beginning, and you know, then I'm always thinking about the international audience we get, you know, we've got Europeans, um, right. people from all over listening to this, and there's a certain resistance I think on the part of a lot of Europe these days to to not be saturated by the, the symbols and meaning of American politics. Right. But, you know, we are so interdependent, to use a, a Buddhist term, that it happens to some degree. So there's a certain amount of caution, I think, at times in in negotiating these challenges. But um, that's why I guess I'm, I'm slightly more interested in the wider question of, of, of that balance between the personally meaningful and the socially meaningful. But the point you make about time and about the system just sucking everything out of you. So even if you did want to, let's say, be a, a meditative practitioner or whatever, you just you, you can't do it to some degree. But uh, and then there's the issue of education and culture and how much people actually are willing to learn and find out about these practices and their context and the history and the present and and the interesting work that innovators like like Shinzen are doing. So it's right. It's complex. It is complex. But um, let's, um, let's stay with the personal for now. This is another one. I mean, time is certainly one, but even uh, when people may have some time, often motivation is difficult to keep up. And I think that's true both for beginners, middling practitioners and uh, longer term practitioners too. And I think uh, often we underestimate the need to sort of revitalize practice uh, at times and if you've got a decent enough teacher or, or support community, that can happen there. What about what about you, George? What motivates you to keep going with these practices and to, what well, in in the case of of what you've told us so far, branch out and work with people like Dan? Well, I think that um, householders' practice is never going to really do it, and so it's an integrated retreat and householder practice, and that the 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 periods of uh, being able to do intensive practice are really what move people forward, which is again this this question of resources. How do you, uh, you know, for instance, take a week off and do a retreat, uh, uh, which means you have to pay all your bills while you're away. You have to pay for the retreat and then ho- hopefully give some donna to the teacher. Um, and that, uh, how do you organize your life in such a way that the time, energy, and resources that you need are available for the practice? If you're in a family situation, then um, those resources are coming from the family. So there's a negotiation with with the family members and how those resources are are used. Um, I um, 
Shinzen said to me uh, early on, if you want to have a daily practice, you have to be cunning with yourself in order to get yourself to do it. And so the reason I do morning meditation is because I'm obligated to do my meditation every day, which I might not do if I wasn't. Um, and then uh, people uh, call in so that there's actually a community to sit with. And you, I do a, a question and answer period after the meditation so that if you have ongoing questions about your practice, you can bring them to morning meditation. And then there's a discussion that happens every morning. So it it's not, it doesn't become this totally isolating and solo practice when you're engaged in, uh, in some way in a community. Uh, another way, of course, in, and hopefully in non-COVID times, we'll get back to it, a place where... Um, You can go, and there's a community of people that are also practicing, obviously, if you, you're trying to relate uh, meditative experiences to somebody who doesn't really meditate, they don't really get it, and oftentimes they undermine your use of resources in the way, uh, you know, um, I'm going on a silent meditation retreat for a week. Why would you do that? Uh, so um, that's the main thing. Once you get past the beginning, you're going to need a, a teacher, or most people will. So how do you find a teacher? Hopefully there's somebody that you can be in direct contact to in a reasonable interval, and then setting up your life in such a way that you can go on meditative retreats, uh, I would say twice a year, uh, but once a year as a, as a inadequate minimum, and, and then your, your practice can develop. But um, but what about you, George? I mean, if there wasn't all that, right? If you didn't have that discipline in the morning and that sense of perhaps duty or responsibility to a community, what would motivate you to give up that time to sit, to work on this? Um, well, freedom is a word that comes to mind, to be free of the early conditioning and, and the causes of my own my own actions that lead to uh, suffering. Um, there's a curiosity that I think is useful uh, to really have a sense of how the, the world is and how it works, uh, what the human experience is really like. Um, uh, I, you know, it's uh, for me, um, having had such a, a challenging beginning in, in life, uh, life for me was really just a, a terribly painful chaotic and uh, isolating experience. And so the, there was a lot of motivation that was just inherent in that, that conditions or response to it. Um, I think that, you know, life is difficult for everybody. Um, how do you then not get undone by the disappointment of things? That's what I was alluding to when I said, that getting good at losing things, everything's impermanent, everything changes, everything is lost. As you age, of course, you, you have less energy, the body is less dynamic, um, uh, uh, and you begin to accumulate this disappointment of, of those endings and those failures and those difficulties. And uh, that in itself can be quite inhibiting to actually try again, knowing that at the end of it is that uh, it could be disappointing if you can't uh, manage it. Uh, and then that accumulation of disappointment because you can't really integrate it uh, begins to uh, 
curtail the exploration that it, that provides the meaningfulness of life, and then suddenly you're in this place of despair because life doesn't have enough meaning, and and you're you're too afraid of disappointment to risk you know, finding it, and then you live this sort of truncated life. Um, I grew up that way, and I didn't really want to do that anymore, and so. I was highly motivated to find a way out of that so that I wouldn't have to spend a whole life in that sort of despair. So that's what motivates me. That's a good motivation. Getting out of suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But it's good to name it, right? Yeah. yeah. I didn't have a particularly easy childhood too, but it's easy to forget. I, I think there's a certain process of almost erasing history with some of these practices is not intentional but they become so distant sometimes i think when one is able to make a significant change in transformation of one's one's past and how that lingers in the present right i remembered this feeling quite recently of you made me think of when you were talking of of being trapped being trapped in a world that was created for me by the suffering of my family and the society i was part of at the time and the idea of living that as my existence was hugely powerful in motivating me to come to these practices, but also to go into the field of psychotherapy and everything else. Uh-huh. You mentioned the word curiosity, and I think that's actually one of the most underrated qualities in the practicing life. It's easy to get complacent or feel like, that's it, I've got the answers here, or I just need to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, but curiosity is fundamental, I think, no matter what age you are. What are you curious about in terms of Buddhism and practice? Is there, is there an area of either that you feel like you'd like to know more about or you wish you had time to explore more? The thing that I guess that's the most interesting to me now in my practice is trying to have a deeper understanding of karma. Hmm. Um, so much of, you know, you, you, we, um, Taken the sensing data, we we uh, through the process of perception create the, the experience of the conceptual world. Part of that is the intention and the action that we take, and then tracking the action as it comes back. And uh, I find in my own practice that my personal preferences about what I want to have happen or not have happen distort that process, and that it undermines my capacity to really open to the nature of karma. And um, and so that's where the edge is for me. The the if the thing that I want to have happen doesn't happen, um, is the emotional response to that um, undermine my capacity to see what is happening and to understand that that actually is the is the uh, karmic result and that I actually should be uh, organizing my response based on what's actually happening and not on my dislike of what's happening or my preference for something else to have happened. Um, and in uh, doing that more and more and getting, getting more settled into not really, uh, knowing, um, in that sense, um, it always reminds me of the story of the farmer and the horse. Do you know that Zen story? Good luck, bad luck. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, the outcomes um, are the result of uh, all of the choices that you made, but the complexity of what the possibility of those outcomes is so great that we can't possibly manage to predict with any real reliability what's going to happen. That openness, that curiosity about what actually did happen 
and really being engaged in that process rather than getting caught up in the, the sense of self and the, the sense of preference and, and what I'd hoped would happen and didn't happen or uh, all of that stuff. Um, and what I find in, in, in exploring that and trying to settle into that, really just this vast curiosity about what is happening and moving from that place reduces my suffering even more um, and also adds a, a component of delight to it. And it doesn't even matter what's happening. It's just that this is what's happened. And then I can do this in response to it rather than this is what I wanted to have happen. And it didn't quite happen the way that I wanted it. So I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. So that making sense? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> It's clear. I, I, I think the role of expectation in creating suffering is runs very, very deep indeed. Right. You know, <laughs> and we are, we are creatures of habit, of course. But uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to I was going to say something about karma. You know, we we um, one of our earliest episodes from a few years back was with a a Kiwi living in the UK called Jayarava, who uh, uh-huh. who had an interesting conversation with us about karma and about reincarnation in which he basically uh, dismantled the two of them and it was just interesting it was an interesting conversation and quite controversial for some folks but uh, uh you described it afterwards as basically choices and consequences which i think uh, uh you know is is perfectly fine and uh i agree i kind of like the quantum mechanics view of karma so that's kind of how i i roll with it well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road. <laughs> we'll leave you with that, George. <laughs> this is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like, really. Housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper-middle-class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold, and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else. Perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen, really, in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So... Some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So, give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking 
well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism. Waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc., etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. I think this is a good point for us to talk about something that you're very much involved in. And I think, like I suggested at the beginning, is very interesting, which is addiction and attachment. There may be a correlation somewhere between uh, hedonism, escape, transcendence, and what I think is often a dysfunctional desire for something along the lines of enlightenment or, or some kind of total release or freedom or whatever. Perhaps you'll have something to say about the the relationship or the potential relationship between those, especially in its dysfunctional form. But why don't we start off a little bit with the basics? So, addiction and attachment. This is something you you work with people on. Um, from what I understand, it's something you you have your own experience with. What do you think is the importance for practitioners in coming to terms with these two characteristics of addiction and attachment? Well. We think that addiction, the underlying cause of addiction is an attachment to a disturbance of the avoidant uh, vein. Uh, there's two aspects of that. There's an organized uh, avoidant uh, attachment strategy, which is dismissing, called dismissing an adult. And there's a disorganized version, which is often called fearful avoidant. Um, there's a high correlation between these two attachment outcomes and uh, addiction. When you look at it from that point of view, addiction is an auto-regulating system, um, and uh, people who use an avoidant attachment strategies don't like to be intimately connected to other people. They like to be sort of transactionally connected to other people, and uh, disorganized people are so afraid of other people that they, they don't really open themselves up to being in intimate relationships with others. But this social isolation, because we are uh, herd animals and we're meant to be uh, engaged in complex social uh, groups, is painful. And so uh, one of the things that people who use substances or process addictions are doing is attempting to relieve the painfulness of their social isolation. The main problem with uh, any of these things is that they're um, based on the reward systems in the human body. So uh, the dopamine system, the the endorphin system, or the uh, oxytocin system. And so you see clusters of addiction around the different, uh, different reward systems. Most people are um, um, chasing dopamine. So uh, for instance, alcohol increases the dopamine level in the in the brain by about 120%. So you get that uh, feeling that dopamine brings, which is that sort of warm, connected ease. 
Um, but the the body mind, of course, is constantly trying to balance itself so that if you if you take a substance that increases the level of dopamine, then the the brain prunes back the dopamine receptors so that you have to take a larger dose to get the same feeling. And so the that's that uh, main problem with substance addiction is that you're constantly having to increase the dose to get the effectiveness that you're looking for. And at a certain point, you, you have to take such a high dose that it has a, uh, an impact either on your cognitive function or on your biology. Uh, and so then things begin to fall apart because the recovery time from using is so great. The way out of that, of course, is to learn how to be an intimate relationship so that you can turn to other people to be the source of emotional regulation that you need. And you can be, in a sense, connected and, and part of uh, a group of people the, to provide a sense of security so that you can develop that small group of people around you that are your secure base. If you don't have a secure base, of course, it Im- impacts your ability to explore and so People who are addicted also don't tend to explore much, and so they have the uh, additional distress of um, not exploring and not finding meaning. Um, so what often happens in treatment in the West, of course, is that they're treating the symptoms and you're supposed to just be abstinent. But what we know is that you don't really have a choice about whether you emotionally regulate or not. What you have is a, a, a an agency in how you do it. And so simply withdrawing the addictive behavior doesn't really work because then the person is left to be dysregulated. Um, and in, in, in uh, the United States, of course, we have treatment where you come into 28 days or two months of intensive treatment, but then you get the emotional regulation in the treatment environment so that you're able to stay uh, abstinent or using a harm reduction model. Uh, during that period, but then once you go back out in the world, the the relapse rates are astounding. Uh, And without really attempting to address the underlying attachment conditioning, avoidant people find it very challenging to even try to set up um, uh, functioning intimate relationships. So that what we do is this uh, three-pillar approach, which Dan developed, which is doing a remapping of the um, early conditioning around relationships uh, using an ideal parent figure protocol. We do a mentalizing training. Uh, People who uh, use addiction don't think clearly and they aren't able to evaluate the consequences of their actions adequately enough to understand that the, the value of using is not nearly uh, as good as uh, the consequences that have to be paid for it, particularly later in, in addiction when there's some outside force uh, compelling you to get treatment, which is mostly how that happens. And then the last piece is the psychoeducation. If you grow up in a family system, since addiction is largely a skill set that you learn in a family system, um, the psychoeducation around how secure relationships function, because mostly what's been mapped for you is insecure relationships uh, that have addiction as a component to them. All of the things that we do, of course, are meditation-based because we are a meditation community. And so we use the the, uh, ideal parent figures and adaptation of the Mahamudra Tibetan practices. The mentalizing stuff is all uh, Theravada-based Vipassana and metta meditation. And then then the psychoeducation is 
just basically a data dump. Mm-hmm. And how effective does this combination work? I mean, what have you seen since working with it? Well, we are able to shift people's attachment strategies uh, from insecure into the secure range. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did a study, uh, Dan uh, used his group, and we used Metagroup as the control group um, and found that, uh, by and large, everybody who undertakes the, the training can shift their attachment strategy toward uh, the secure range. There's a range rather than a, a single point to, to get to, mm-hmm. um, and that it it's a re- relatively reasonable amount of time. It's a, uh, but probably about three years of practicing in this uh, defined way is enough mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally had 28 years of psychotherapy uh, of various kinds, and at the end of the 28 years, my underlying attachment was the same as it was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that, uh, and I think I worked with really good people. It's not that the, the therapy was inadequate and that it was, a, in some sense, an accommodation to how things were rather than uh, an approach that actually changed how things were. Right. Uh, so, right. Um, but they weren't that good. And mm. it, it was a constant source of despair that I, I was going to have this truncated life because of the, 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 the crappy beginning Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I originally heard about attachment uh, theory, there was nothing in terms of treatment available because it was still in the research stage. And so I really began my own exploration in meditation on how to work with it. And that's what uh, became the basis of the metagroup system. But it actually did not work well enough. Uh, and so when we found Dan's work and added that to the stuff that we were doing, it became quite effective. So we're, we're really pleased about that. Mm-hmm. Would you would you say, in your experience, that we all suffer to some degree from some form of addiction or attachment uh, dysfunction? Um, I would not. Hmm. But I would say that secure people tend to associate only with secure people so it creates the impression in insecure people that there aren't actually secure people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this is actually not what's happening. Um, if you are disorganized, it's likely that the only people you know are disorganized because they're the only people who are willing to be in relationship to you. Uh, secure people, uh, one of the things uh, about secure people that it, is that they're not particularly tolerant of the presentations of insecure uh, attachment because they they never had to accommodate it. Mm. They've always had reliable people. They've always shown up. They've always done what they said they were going to do. And uh, insecure people and disorganized people don't really operate that way. And so you get one or two chances with a secure person to show up in in that very reliable, consistent way. And if you don't do it, they don't really become intimate with you. So you don't have the experience of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they form long lasting relationships. And so, you know, their dance cards fill up and then they can live their entire life with the same group of people. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're not even available at that point. Mm-hmm. That's part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. 
You've mentioned the word intimacy on several occasions, both uh, in terms of intimate relationships, but also uh, slightly beyond that. How do you see the role of intimacy playing out in practice? So what I mean by intimacy is that you're willing to tell somebody your experience of the present moment as it's happening through the filter of right speech, of course, but not spinning it because it causes you anxiety about being abandoned. Um, obviously, you don't want to give everybody this access to this uh, state of vulnerability that you might be in, but you, you, so that people who have proven themselves to be trustworthy are the people that you share this with. We use uh, the, the research uh, by Robin Dunbar, the French neuroscientist, in terms of social organization for this, but um, <clears throat> that you are willing to tell somebody everything that is your experience of the present moment so that they really know you, really see you, uh, really comprehend you, and you do it even if uh, it, it causes some anxiety about being abandoned, but uh, you have the sense that the relationship is so stable and uh, you're so well connected that that won't happen. Mm, that's clear. So in practice, of course, we need to be able to emotionally regulate those experiences. And so that's where I think the, the practice comes in. It, meditation in itself can be a, just a phenomenally a powerful emotional regulation tool so that even in, in moments of intense emotion and difficult emotion, because the mind has been trained uh, through meditation, it can hold the space of that without needing to escape from it. Yeah, I think there's sometimes the risk that uh, meditation can be used for emotional suppression or uh, control or avoidance, um, but that's clearly not happening in the work you're describing. Well, I would call that a misuse of meditation. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, one, one man's misuse is uh, another man's it's, meditation uh, tradition. <laughs> Sorry to say it, but... <laughs> well, it's interesting, because I, I work with a monk now. Uh, he's uh, trading me um, uh, meditation and instruction, and I'm trading him attachment instruction because hmm. uh, of the... Uh, Dysfunction in the monastery. Yeah. Uh, the, the most senior monks are these rigidly dismissing people, um, and they think the, the ideal monastic situation is where you have no relationships with anybody that are intimate. And so, uh, people who are not that uh, have a really hard time with it. And so, mm -hmm. I think that, in, particularly in the West, though, you know, in the monastic communities, people who don't function well in the outside world that end up going there whereas in the mm. in the east it's still a more societal yeah yeah you've kind of anticipated the last question i wanted to ask you on this topic which was um as you're fully aware no doubt there have been a lot of dysfunctional uh, communities right. many of them in the states regarding guru figures and uh what should we call them uh naive followers but I, I can't help but think um there's a lot of uh, parental dysfunction going on in those group i mean that, that seems to be a case study in uh, the transferal of attachment dysfunction from regular parents to this this father figure in most cases although you do get the odd mother figure on occasion <laughs> I, mean, I, I assume you've given some thought to that it's difficult not to at some point right well um 
have you ever ever had the experience of looking at something and they just they just light up they glow sure mm. we have a shorthand mechanism um where we identify quite rapidly people who we think will provide the kind of care that we received in the family systems that we grew up in. Mm. And those people glow for us. It's actually the eyes dilate when you recognize that. <laughs> it's, a, it's an evolutionary uh, shorthand because if you got good care, you can walk into a room of 200 people and see the people that are likely to provide you good care. But if you got crap care, you're walking in the room and you're identifying the, the people who will give you a similar kind of crap care. So that if you're unconscious about this process, uh, you then engage in these relationships that are essentially a repetition of the the system that you grew up in. But, but we all do that. Uh, mm. the, the main difference, of course, is that some of us don't – some of us grow up in crap systems and some of us grow up in good systems. And if we're in a good system, it's less likely that you're going to be uh, – uh, available for the kind of mistreatment because you don't accept it. Whereas if you grew up in a family system where that was the case, uh, then you can uh, easily enter into a kind of trauma bonding relationship, uh, in which case you don't have the, the conditioning that would cause you to recognize and identify the behavior as problematic. Um, now, if you're on the other side where you have power in the relationship and you also grew up in that crap system, you're not going to have the red flags either. And so uh, you're simply engaged in this unconscious uh, conditioned response rather than free of it in, in the experience of the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the power dynamics are social lots of people are interested in um uh social hierarchy they like to be high up on the the food chain of that and and often they're willing to trade position for uh, the behavior that the person in power offers so there's a lot of motivations to it mm -hmm. i i mostly think that it it comes from a place of unconsciousness yeah yeah, you, you you may well be right. I think hopefully we've seen enough of the scandals now for people to be far more cautious about who they give their power away to. But uh, who knows? History does have a habit of repeating itself, right? So Yes. So look, we're coming up to the hour mark and uh, I don't want us to finish without talking about some of your projects. So you've been uh. mentioning the Meta Group and there's a dedicated website to that. Uh, where people can find lots of uh, resources. But you've also mentioned a couple of other things. You've mentioned a book, which I'll, I'll let you tell us about. And you've mentioned a project that's coming up as well with a, a celebrity of sorts. Uh, so why don't you uh, just tell us a bit more about that then. Tell us about your book and then this project. I have a, a written a memoir called uh, The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect, which is centered around 1979 in New York, which was the beginning of the AIDS period. Um, there's a the, the book is in three sections. The first section is a, a long prose poem that I wrote uh, in, the, in, the, in, in that time frame. The middle section of the book are portraits of people that I knew at the time, most of them who died from AIDS um, at that time. And then there's the third section, which, which is a reflection back on that. 
we originally started this conversation about talking about uh, practice and personal practice and the effect of it. And so one of the things that's interesting about the book is that the third section uh, reflects on the change of um, my point of view around the early part of my life. Uh, and it's it's deeply affected by the practice that I've uh, um, undertaken. And so there's, a, in some sense, a lot of the material that we have around the nature of uh, practice and uh, that is around actually the technique of it or the philosophy of it. And in this book is really a reflection of how practice changes your point of view and how you then can uh, make a coherency out of the early life before practice and and the effect of practice on uh, understanding uh, those circumstances and then coming to terms with it uh, the way life is now so that's it it's the book is is a is a it's a big thing it weighs 11 pounds and so i don't quite have a way of distributing it in europe yet we do have an ebook available, and there will be an audio book of it uh, um, coming out uh, hopefully soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a big book because it's not just words, right? If I remember correctly, there's uh, there are these portraits, but there's quite a bit of photography in there. Right. Um, I'm an I, I think of myself as an artist, and my main media is photography, and so mm-hmm. I took uh, portraits of my social group at the time, um, and then. Uh, and uh, so there's a, a series of portraits of the people that were in my inner circle at the time. Um, it's uh, one of the things about uh, getting older is, of course, that you you can reflect back on those um, earlier experiences. Um, if you were to talk about a life, so youth, so childhood to say up to age ten, adolescence up to say age twenty, youth up to, say, age 30, and then you have your adult life. And then that lasts until about 55, and then old age. Um, and then, you know, if you you get the good genes and live past 75, you're into old, old age. Um, but to reflect back on the uh, point of view of youth and what we what our hopes were and what our ambitions were and what our efforts were, uh, uh, and then uh, from that perspective and in the writing, that early writing, that's all there because uh, I was in my 20s and uh, did not know the outcomes. Then to reflect back on that from my uh, uh, you know, late 60s on the, the, all of those aspects, um, it's quite interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly uh, for people who practice because the practice changed so much of the way that I operated uh, uh, and changed uh, in that process of bodhicitta, opening up from this very sort of self-oriented, self-centered pursuit to, um, you know, ending up in, as a meditation teacher largely in service of the community that I support, uh, so radically different uh, from the intentions of youth. Um, so maybe we, we think that you we don't change so much but over a lifetime, but then when you actually get into reflecting on it, uh, it's, the changes are quite uh, substantial and remarkable, I think. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, especially so for those who've, who've been challenged by difficult childhoods and, and chose not to just reproduce it in their lives. Right. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a hero's journey to some degree in there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> or a hero's thrashing around. <laughs> yeah, is there much difference? I mean, you know. <laughs> have you read the Iliad of late? I mean, there's a lot of thrashing about in there too. <laughs> We're all just thrashing about, George. <laughs> That's how it looks from over here. Yeah, well, here too. <laughs> so there you go. It must be true. So, yeah. Okay, great. So, look, there, there's your book. Um, I don't think you mentioned the name, which is an unusual name. The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. There it is. We will send it to Europe. It costs as much as the book to send it. So, yeah, I'm sure it does. Eleven pounds. <laughs> e-, e version, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> so, what about your? Your second project then. So um, Meditation Center, is that right, in L.A.? Can you say more? We're, um, sure. Uh, We're opening, uh, we have a building in Van Nuys, which we're opening up, and it's going to be, uh, we we think of it as a cultural center in addition to a meditation center. Uh, And we're interested in advocating progressive ideas. And so, we're going to use it as a, a forum for uh, a study of progressive uh, ideas. Um, mainly, we're engaged in the idea that we think that uh, society should be organized for equality and away from inequality, and that largely the institutions that support inequality um, need to be changed or replaced. In addition to that, we'll have meditation, um, which will be, uh, um, I will be teaching there, but also we'll be bringing in a variety of, of teachers. Uh, we are, we don't think that we need to present uh, a, what we call fair and balanced in this country. Everything is going to be oriented toward uh, progressive ideas. And so th- that will be the orientation of the teachers. Uh, um we're going to also have a uh, uh, a program uh, around uh, attachment repair, which is the way we've organized it now, a year-long program where people come into uh, small groups and go through the, the curriculum. We have a five-level curriculum around attachment repair. The first part is basically a, an education around what it is that's happening. The second is a a, a training in the meditation techniques that we use to help change attachment. The third is a is a, a one-on-one approach uh, using ideal parent figure and uh, to get the remapping of the the attachment system. Uh, and then the fourth is uh, mapping relationship patterns in people and. And, and using the different meditation strategies to help repair those so that you can be in intimate functioning relationships. And then we have a, a fifth level for people that are already coupled to help move the dynamics of the relationship into secure functioning territory. One of the things about treating uh, attachment um, is, is that people who have 
real attachment disturbances are completely socially isolated. And so combining that with a, a meditation center creates the opportunity for people to join a community and be a part of a community and, and find the people that, you know, the four or five people that they're going to need to support them in that community in an environment that's protected and also has a shared vocabulary. I think one of the main problems with treatment at the moment is that once you leave the treatment community to go back to the life that you were in, the, the support that you had that made it possible to do the work uh, disappears and then it becomes again impossible to do the work. The building has a kitchen in it, so we're going to have uh, food service available so that it, it it is actually a place to gather. There's a, 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 a 20,000 square foot garden that that's uh, around the building, which is uh, uh, behind a wall. Um, the, the building itself is actually a 1938 former post office. Uh, and so it has that sort of FHA architecture, which is um, during the Depression in the 30s in the U.S., the government funded all of this building, and the, the architecture has a particular look to it. So it's one of those buildings in the Spanish deco style, which I really like. Um, and so it has two 300-year-old oak trees in the in, in, in the garden space. Uh, so it it has the potential to be this warm uh, inviting environment where people can come in and touch into these uh, difficult uh, beginnings and uh, repair them in a way that they can then move beyond them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have all of the cultural material there uh, and uh, uh, to support the development of the capacity to explore. Oftentimes when you have challenging beginnings, you don't actually have much, uh, a, you haven't been given a lot of attention to developing your capacity to to find meaning. And so in addition to finding meaning, you have to develop the capacity to be able to find it, which is also something we are going to be supporting in the center. My partner in it is Sia, who is a singer, and uh, and, uh, she has, uh, um, she also has a challenging beginning, which she talks about quite a bit and and has found this work to be very helpful to her. And so uh, as an act of generosity, she's making it possible for us to do this well good for her yes <laughs> yeah and good for you <laughs> yes <laughs> big project george are you uh you're rolling up your sleeves and uh you know getting stuck in or <laughs> i assume this is going to be a you know group project well i you know as a as the uh you know sort of the founding teacher of this of course i'm going to try and train people to to do the work uh, I think in the West, this is one of the most challenging areas is to uh, to develop a kind or a system of practice and then trying to train people in order to be able to facilitate it for a larger number of people because it's very easy for a, a single person to fill up. I mean, I've been, my individual practice has been full for years. Um, so uh, in the West, uh, because of this rugged individualism and nobody really wants to, to um, play on a team, um, it's very challenging for everybody I know to try and replicate the, the capacity of the original teacher mm. and that what ends up happening, of course, when that doesn't happen is that 
that particular strain of teaching goes on as long as the teacher is teaching, and as soon as they stop, it dies out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's that's the main uh, dilemma that I'm going to be confronting in this is how to to uh, replicate uh, the capacity to teach this stuff, which I think is uh, well, it's it's quite amazing to have uh, a system that actually verifiably changes people's attachment strategy. We we use it in a, the adult attachment interview, which is this research instrument that tests your current attachment strategy, and then we test at intervals to make sure that the teachings are being applied appropriately so that people are making progress. And we are seeing in that uh, objective testing that people are uh, succeeding in, in changing their underlying attachment strategies. And then what you see come from that is this remarkable transfer transformation in the way that their lives unfold um so moving out you know our culture is basically a team sport and if you can't play on a team you don't get very far you don't get to play yeah you don't get to play and so really teaching people how to to play uh, actually would be a great way of, of calling this work that's what we're trying to do so you don't have to sit uh, alone eating worms. Yeah, or looking inside from the outside, stuck on the other side of the fence or the bench or whatever. George, um, we're uh, we're approaching the end of our time, and uh, I want to thank you for giving up your time today to have a chat with us here on the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. It's been uh, it's been interesting, and um, you know you're doing good work. Uh, it seems pretty important to me, so I'm I'm glad you're. Uh, you're growing this project and the challenge of finding uh, people to, to pass this on to seems about right for this phase of your life, you know? Yeah. So all the best with it. And uh, thank you. You take care of yourself during this COVID lockdown and hopefully we'll all get to go outside again at some point, right? <laughs> Enjoy those trees. <laughs> Cuckoo, as they say in Italy, or hey there, if you're American, and you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations? And all that hard work we put into them. If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget The hard-working men and women are giving up their time, energy, and effort to make it for you. None of it is free, and that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com, scroll down on the right for the donation button, and do your part. Thank you.